We're in Ephesians chapter 2. You've got your Bibles, Ephesians 2. By the way, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, take one of the Bibles on the sides. They've got, uh, they're all around the corners. Sides. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Now, I'm quite aware that was a grim portrait, a little bit of a dark way to begin. You should be aware that this is a succinct summary of the human condition outside of Christ, who we were before Christ, unredeemed by Christ. This is the human condition. The classic passage in all the Scripture about the sinfulness of mankind occurs in the book of Romans, from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, throughout the rest of 1, all of 2, first half of 3, the classic passage. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the passage I just read, is a succinct summary that kind of pulls together, wraps up the essence of our sinfulness. Now, we're going to focus on this passage this, this morning, but I want you to to be aware of the very next words. Because after that grim portrait, we read in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, in light of the sinfulness of the human condition, the very next words, but God. But God did something. When we could not do anything, but God. When we were at our lowest, but God. When we were completely hopeless and helpless, but God. And we're going to see in the coming weeks the grace, the mercy, the sheer wonder of God's grace. Church, here's the point about Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. If we do not realize the depths of our sinfulness outside of Christ, we will never appreciate the greatness of God's grace to us in Christ. We just won't. If we have a shallow view of our own sinfulness we will have a superficial view of God's grace and love and mercy to us. So we've got to appreciate the depths of our depravity and what God has rescued us from. There was a theologian in Britain some centuries ago, several centuries ago, who said this about sin. He said, He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. And I hope that's not true of you. I hope you do not have slight thoughts of sin and have never had great thoughts of God. But I hope you recognize the blackness of the human condition apart from Christ and the greatness, the splendor, the beauty of God's grace and mercy that covered all of our sin. The passage begins with a rather stark phrase when it says, and you were 
dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. You were spiritually dead. That's not figurative or metaphorical language. That's literal language, not a physical death, but a real spiritual death. Now, if God is the source of all life in the universe, including all spiritual life, that is, if you have life when you're connected, joined to God in Christ, then of course, if you're outside of Christ, if you've rebelled against Christ, if you have uh, rejected Him, then you are dead spiritually. You have no spiritual life. The Bible would say you're spiritually dead. In the most profound sense, you're dead. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, nothing less than that. Now, this is what's striking, paradoxical. When you look around at the non-Christian world, those folks seem pretty alive. In fact, some of them have these athletic bodies, maybe these beautiful bodies, handsome bodies. Some of them have razor-sharp minds. Some of them have uh, engaging, vibrant personalities, and they seem so alive. But let me tell you, if they are outside of Christ, and the most important matter of all, not the intellectual or the physical or the social, but the spiritual, they are dead. That if you could look inside their souls, there would be a gaping hollowness. Now, if you became a Christian a little bit later in life, you know, not when you're three or four years old, I, when I was 18 years old, I could look back at my time before that and could see the gaping hollowness in my soul. And maybe you can too. But whatever age you came to Christ, before that, you were completely in your sin and most helpless and hopeless. Sometimes it is said that, well, you know, the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't say that at all. It says actually things like this, God helps the helpless, the hopeless. When we can do nothing about our sin, God gives us life and opens our, our eyes. Sometimes uh, um, we wonder that some of these passages speak so strongly about the sovereign election of God that the reason that we're saved is because God in His sovereignty and His grace, He gives us the faith to believe. And we wonder about that, but, but it shouldn't be a surprise to us at all because before Christ, we are spiritually dead. And dead people don't move. They need a Savior to open our blind eyes and to give life to our dead soul. Give us any inkling of a desire for God. It is all of His grace and His mercy. So, when you look around at folks, even attractive and popular and famous folks, they may seem alive if they're outside of Christ. They are dead, the Bible says, and that's who we really are outside of Christ. Notice he goes on, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You don't currently walk in those sins because you're now a believer in Jesus Christ. You've been born again to new life. You've been regenerated to new life. You are a transformed person. But these are the, this is the way you once lived. So this is not a portrait of us today. We saw that in chapter 1. We're going to see that uh, next time we get in Ephesians and the rest of chapter 2. This is not who we are now. This is who we once were. We once walked in our trespasses and our sin. Now, if you are here this morning and you consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ and you are still living in your sin, then something is drastically wrong. If you are still living in a state of rebellion against God, say that, you know, you've got, um, uh, your life is no, 
essentially different than your non-Christian neighbors and friends and colleagues at work. Uh, when it comes to money, when it comes to sexual purity, when it comes to anger and forgiveness and all kinds of things, if your life is no different than non-Christian neighbors, then something is drastically wrong, and it ought to at least raise the question, have I really trusted Christ as my Savior, or do I simply have a bit of a dose of Christianity or a dose of churchianity? You know, maybe you kind of grew up in a church, and maybe your parents were believers, but you don't inherit this sort of thing. But if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, if you have recognized, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and you know that He has loved you and transformed you, then there's got to be some differences in your life. And so, might be a, a reason to ask yourselves, because you realize that, that God did not save you just so you could have forgiveness, but that you could live a whole new life. And in every part of your being, you're transformed. This is who God has called us to. So, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we see that we are spiritually dead. But then he goes on to say that you follow the course of this world. You're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, we start off that we're spiritually dead, and now this second movement talks about our entrapment to the world, the devil, and the flesh, a classic triad in the Bible, usually stated like the world, the flesh, and the devil, but here it is depicted as the world, the devil, and the flesh our enslavement to it. So this is our human condition outside of Christ. We are not only spiritually dead, lifeless in terms of the life of God, but we are enslaved to the world, the world system. That's the world system opposed to God. We're enslaved to the flesh, our own sinful tendencies. So it's not all external, it is also us. And then there is a spiritual enemy, the devil, and his demonic hordes, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's look at each of them. It says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. That is this, uh, the world system that opposed to God. You followed the course of the world. You may have thought you were an independent thinker. You may have thought you were like Henry David Thoreau marching to the beat of your own drummer. But oh no, you were a slave to the sinfulness of the world like birds in a flock. Wherever the flock goes, you go. That's the way we are outside of Christ. We were not fine, independent thinkers. We were entrapped and enslaved by the world system. So the world lives in rebellion against God. So did we. The world lives in, in human unbelief in the goodness and the grace of God. So did we. The Bible, I mean, the world lives in stubborn independence and the idolatry of putting things ahead of God, and sexual immorality and impurity, holding on to grudges and resentments, finding all of our security and significance and money and achievements, so did we. That is how we live outside of Christ. We follow the course of this world, squeezed into its mold. Moreover, it goes on to say we're following Outside of Christ, we were following the prince of the power of the air. That's the dark prince. That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What the Bible teaches, friends. Sometimes we think that we've got some human enemies. 
But the Bible says, oh, no, they're, more, they're far more severe. There are these unseen beings. You've never seen them, hopefully. But they're there, and they're real, and they are venomous. And the Bible says that Satan and his hordes are like, prowling, like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Devour. Just imagine Satan devouring your soul, devouring your marriage, devouring your family, ruining everything good in your life. The keynote of the satanic strategy we ought to all be very aware of. The very first time that we see Satan's devouring in the book of uh, in the Bible is in Genesis 3, and his basic strategy against Eve is this. God is not good, and God cannot be trusted. And that is exactly the satanic strategy against you. Remember, he comes to Satan and I mean, Satan comes to Eve and says, has God really said this? Is God really depriving you of something you really need to be happy? And that is the voice that you will hear throughout your life, that you really need this thing to be happy. You better get that divorce if you're going to be really happy. You better uh, uh, hold on to that money if you're really going to be happy. You better hang on to that resentment if you're really going to be happy. That is the satanic strategy, that God is not good, that God is holding back on you, and you really cannot trust him. And he will ruin your life that way. The prince of the power of the air. Sometimes we think that, you know, if you've had some real struggles in your marriage, that, oh man, it just seems like your spouse is your enemy. She's not your enemy. He's not your enemy. Maybe somebody at, boss, at, at work, your boss or someone, is, is giving you such a hard time, you think, man, he's my enemy. Maybe you're in litigation with somebody, you think, that person's my enemy. He's not your enemy. That's not your enemy. You've got a demonic enemy. At the end of the book of Ephesians, in the classic passage on spiritual warfare, one powerful verse, verse 12, says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He says, just be straight, humans are not your enemy. He says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, this is our enemy. There are demonic beings out for your blood and your soul and your family, and your kids. And we must stick close to Jesus. Okay, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and by the way, how did Jesus fight the battle? In Matthew 4 and Luke 3, we see how Jesus fights the battle when Satan comes after him in a very physical, tangible way. Well, every time he comes after him, Jesus says, it is written, quotes the Scriptures, and obeys the Scriptures. And friends... If you have a chance in the spiritual battle, it will only be because you live in this Word and you soak your mind in this Word and you obey this Word. And like Jesus, you fight with the sword of the Spirit. Satan will try to destroy who God really is in your mind. Don't listen. Soak your minds in God's Word. Okay, the world, the devil, and now the flesh in verse 3 where we read, among whom we all once lived. Now, you know, he's been talking about you, Ephesians. You are dead in your trespasses and sin, but now he is making quite clear, this is everybody, every single human being. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So this is the flesh, 
The word flesh in the Bible usually refers not to the meat on your bones, but to this sinful tendency within, this sinful human tendency. The flesh includes not just sins of the body, but also sins of the mind. He makes that quite clear here in verse 3 when he says, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we're not talking about just sexual sins or gluttony sins or things like that. It also includes human pride, self-righteousness, ego, jealousy, envy, all of those. Generally, basically, you could put it this way. The flesh is whenever we live for self rather than for God. It's the kingdom of self. All about self. It's all about me, my dreams. So outside of Christ, here is the human condition. We are not only spiritually dead, but we are enslaved and trapped in and, and a, and a cobweb of the world, the devil, and the flesh. One more movement we see in the end of verse 3. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like all mankind, we were as we were born. Outside of Christ, we were by nature, by birth. Not because we began sinning later, we were born in sin. We were by nature children of wrath. We were the recipients of the just wrath of God. Now, there's a little confusion about wrath, and a lot of churches don't talk about it. It's not mentioned in polite Christian society. But it is a good thing because it is God's holy revulsion against sin. It's a good thing. We ought to hate the sin that destroys lives. God hates the sin that destroys lives. John Stott has a good definition. He said, wrath is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. He says, God's wrath is not like man's. It is not bad temper so that he may fly off the handle at any moment. It is neither spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to the only one situation, namely evil, Therefore, it is entirely predictable and is never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. Now, here's the thing about Satan. Remember, Satan's main strategy is to distort who God really is and his goodness. He will try to convince you that, oh, no, God is mad at you. He's angry at you. He's going to fly off, the, off the, uh, the handle at you. He is irascible and quick-tempered. That's not God. We soak in the Bible to understand he's slow to anger. He is patient. He is forgiving. And he is gracious. So by nature, by birth, we are under God's just wrath and condemnation. The theological term for this is called original sin. And what it simply means is that we were born in sin because we were born of Adam. What the Bible teaches is that Adam was our representative, sort of a, a, like a representative of all, mean, all people everywhere. If the football team is playing and one person jumps off sides, the whole team is penalized. Adam jumped off sides in a big way. And the whole team was penalized. Some of you might think, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, maybe it doesn't seem fair, but we would have done the same thing. And moreover, it may not seem fair that if Christ would die for us in our sins, that he gets to be our representative and his blood covers the sins of all people. And we love that. The entire destiny of the humankind rests in the hands of two representatives, either Adam by nature, Christ by grace. All of us were born with Adam in our sin and in the condemnation of a holy, just God. But we can choose 
by the grace of God to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Take him as your Savior. Take him. Amen. Well, church, this is the summary. This is who we are outside of Christ, unredeemed by Christ. Before we came to Christ, because of the devastation of our sin, we do not need a self-improvement plan, do we? You know, when you think about all the crying problems in our nation and around the world, and they're great, but we remind ourselves that the greatest problems are not financial or economic or judicial or political or even terror. You know, these are huge problems, but the fundamental problem is the sinfulness of mankind behind every other problem. And so our basic need is for a Savior, and that's what God sent in Jesus. He sent a Savior to save us from our sins. A few years back, several years, a number of years back, I was talking with a friend who had served as a Navy fighter pilot, and he told me this story that I thought was fascinating. He said that when I was serving on an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean, we were stationed off the coast of Libya, and we were making some final flights before dark, and just when the last pilot had taken off, a thick fog rolled in, and the control tower began recalling all of the pilots. He said that final pilot who had just taken off, his plane was far too heavy with fuel to come back and land very soon. He had about 2,000 pounds, too much of fuel. And so this is what they did. I guess this was standard procedure, that he and his co-pilot uh, began making a tight circle. He, my friend told me it was four or five Gs of pressure. I've never experienced that, but I'm sure that's quite the roller coaster ride. So he's making this tight circle, you know, just around and around, burning off fuel, fuel that you bought. And he's um, um, trying to get rid of this fuel by uh, burning it off. And after four or five minutes of flying in that tight circle, the plane disappears from the radar. And I'm thinking, what? And apparently disappears into the sea. So I'm saying, what happened? And they don't know. But this is what they speculate, that this pilot, he said he was the best pilot in the squadron. His name was Doug Blum. And he said this pilot and his co-pilot apparently were so engaged with the four or five Gs of pressure and watching the fuel gauge to make sure that it got down to just the right amount, but not too much, so they could still get back to the aircraft carrier. They were so preoccupied with watching that fuel gauge that apparently they were not realizing, they were not watching the altimeter, that they were slowly declining toward the sea. And eventually, before they know it, before they realize it, they plunge into the sea. They plunge into the abyss. And what a picture of the destructiveness of sin. It has been said that sin first defiles, first deceives, then defiles, then deadens. And some of you, perhaps, right now, you're living in a web of sin, and you think your gauge that you're looking at is okay, but you're not looking at the main gauge, the gauge of your soul, and you're headed towards the abyss, plunging into destruction. This past week, as I was studying this passage, and it seemed to me pretty clear that, well, the application is twofold, that if you are here in this room, 
and you have never trusted Christ, I don't care if you had a little bit of religion or if you had some church candy or if you've been in church all your life. If you have never trusted Christ to save you from your sin, if you have never, Lord, would you forgive me for my sin, whatever words you used, then this is, this is for you. Call out to a Savior. Because when we were at our lowest, but God, but God rescued us, sent a Savior. So that's one immediate application. But what about those of us who have done that? What is the application of this passage to those of us who have done that? It is very important, and it is right here. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact of what God redeemed us from. Maybe you're like me. You've been a believer for 40 years or so, and maybe you kind of feel like you've always kind of lived this kind of life, and, and you've forgotten the blackness, the depravity of your sin, that you were spiritually dead and hopeless that you were spiritually enslaved, really living for yourself, following the prince of this air and the course of this world, and that you were under the just wrath of God, and it was only the mercy of God that rescued you. Maybe you have forgotten the depths of your sin and what it is that God redeemed you from, and you need to be reminded, oh, God, thank you. Thank you so much. So, to me, it was pretty clear those are the two main applications. But this morning, I'm uh, meeting with the Lord, and I'm uh, t taking time and to, to pray and to read the Bible like I do every day. And in my Old Testament reading, I am in 2 Samuel. And yesterday, I read one of the sad chapters in the Bible, 2 Samuel 11, that you might recognize is the story of one of the great heroes of the Bible, David who succumbs to the temptations of sexual sin. And he calls for the beautiful woman Bathsheba to come to the palace where he sleeps with her. And she gets pregnant. And then he tries to push it off on her husband Uriah, who is a faithful and loyal subject of David, a soldier who's at the battlefront. He sends for Uriah to come, tries to coax Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so he'll think he's the dad. Uriah is too loyal. He said, not while the other soldiers are at the front. I'll just stay right here outside the castle's door. And he won't do it. And so David, as he plunges towards destruction and sin, he has him murdered. He has the general Joab put him in the fiercest part of the, the fighting and then withdraw from him so he's killed. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And it is a sad chapter. As we see again, the Bible doesn't hide the sins of its heroes. Today is not a sad chapter. It is a powerful chapter. Because the chapter today in chapter 12 opens with God sending Nathan the prophet to David, telling him this uh, touching story about the rich man who's got all the lambs and the sheep. But he takes, when he has a guest, he takes the one sheep of the poor man who like a daughter to him, and he, and he kills that one lamb and eats it for the, for the meal. And David is furious. And when he responds that way, Nathan boldly says, you, David, are the man. That's you. And he immediately recognizes the depths of his sin. Nathan says to David, David, uh, speaking for God, he says, I have given you so much and if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Why did you despise my word and do this sin? 
said, David, why did you despise me? Twice in the, the passage, David despised the Lord in his sin. Friend, every time you and I sin, whoever else we wrong, we essentially wrong God. In fact, we despise God when we sin. However little or however big our sin is, we despise God. He's not worthy of my obedience. He's not good, and I can't trust Him. Friend, and so there is a third application. If you are a believer, and you're here, and you are living in sin, oh, may God help us. You are despising, treating God with contempt. And maybe you've got a whole lifestyle of secret sin. Repent. Turn from it. And and, and pour out your soul to God and receive afresh the cleansing grace of God. Do not treat your God with contempt. Stand with me, please. Lord, thank you for a Savior. When we were helpless and hopeless, thank you for a Savior. Thank you for giving us faith to believe in you. Lord, thank you that the shed blood of Jesus covers all of our sin. Lord, because of that, I pray that we would obey you. I pray, Lord God, for each one of us that we would fight the spiritual battle knowing the Word of God and the truths of who you are. Lord, may we recognize your grace and mercy to us. Papa, if there are some folks here who have never trusted Christ as Savior, may right now you open their eyes. Friend, just breathe a prayer. Oh, Jesus, come and save me from my sin. And he will. And bless you, Lord. Amen.